0: I don't like getting beat so much. I got like fifth place out of five people. That really burned me. I didn't really like that at all. Then I started like ramping it up and doing like nine hours a day of just playing banjo. Like I would just literally get up in the morning, play banjo, come home from school, play banjo, do my homework for a second, go back to playing banjo, eat dinner, play banjo, go to bed. and in that psycho repeat. Greetings, everybody.
1: It's the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Happy New Year. We made it to 2022, and I have resolved for my New Year's resolution to interview a bunch of terrific banjo players this year. But Keith, isn't that what you did all of last year? Well, yeah, but uh, I run a banjo podcast. It's sort of what I'm supposed to do. But but couldn't you just resolve to practicing more to improve your own banjo skills, or maybe, like, spending more time with your family, or going outside and getting some exercise every once in a while. Hey, enough out of you. We have banjos to discuss here. But real quick, like, I need to cover the rest of the business. Most importantly, thanking the Patreon supporter of the show, which, uh, for this episode, is a fine young man named Brad Kolodner. Brad's name might sound familiar to you. He is a fantastic claw hammer player and broadcaster, and I, I have a sneaking suspicion that you will be hearing a lot more from Brad in a a, a soon-to-be-released episode. He also happens to be on the IBMA Board of Directors, which is very fitting because this episode was recorded at the International Bluegrass Music Association convention last fall, so uh, I, I guess this would be a good time to warn you that there will be plenty of background noise in this episode, but none of that is Brad's fault, so... Brad Kalodner, thank you so much for your support of the podcast. If you out there, yes, you, would like to become a supporter yourself, go to patreon.com slash banjopodcast and sign up to throw a few bucks per month my way. It really, really helps out, and you do get very handsomely rewarded for uh, your efforts and your patronage. Other ways to show support, make sure you subscribe or whatever it's called on the podcast app that you have. Uh, Follow me on all the social medias. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or just uh, give me some feedback via email. That's very helpful as well. You can contact me at PickyFingersBanjoPodcast at gmail.com with all of your questions, concerns, and suggestions for my New Year's resolution. Today's featured guest is Trey Wellington of the Trey Wellington Band. He is a rising young star in the banjo world. He's already accomplished quite a bit, having won the 2019 IBMA Momentum Instrumentalist of the Year Award. He's also graduated from the Bluegrass Studies program at Eastern Tennessee State University. He recently released his own EP called Uncaged Thoughts, which is excellent and plans to record a solo album this coming year on Mountain Home Music record label. So Trey definitely has a bright future, and as you will be able to tell from this interview, he is a sponge for all sorts of different influences and has taken a lot from the teachers that he's had along the way and uh, I, I was really thankful to be able to pick his brain and get him to share some of the insights that he has learned. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Trey Wellington.
0: Yeah, my name is Trey Wellington. Um, I'm from Ashe County, North Carolina, originally, but now I live in Johnson City, Tennessee. The way I got into the banjo was I started on electric guitar in, um, I think it was eighth grade year. And so I was playing electric guitar, and then I was in this club called the Mountain Music Club because mm-hmm. I started listening to a bunch of Doc Watson as well because my grandpa had, had a lot of Doc Watson CDs in his collection, so I wanted to you know, learn some of that, so I joined that club for that. And in there, I heard a banjo for the first time, and that was through school. Yeah, that was through school. Yeah, oh, that's we had cool. A mountain Music Club. Yeah, so it was really cool, and both teachers were great um, players and musicians. Um, the main person there, um, there was Mandy Lovell and Josh Church, and Mandy um, played guitar and Josh played banjo. Uh-huh. And so, um, but he didn't break out banjo a lot because most of us were guitar, wanting to learn guitar. But when he did break, the first time I heard him really play banjo, he played Salt Creek, and that's kind of what gave me the bug for banjo. Oh, cool. You were still in eighth grade at that point? Yeah, I was in eighth grade, yeah. Um, I was probably like April or May, so we were getting pretty close to the end of the semester. Uh Yeah, that's when I first heard banjo for the first time, like in person.
1: You were already a guitar player, so it's probably tough to get yourself off of that mindset. What do you think it was about the banjo that... Lured you away from what was
0: already your musical interest? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't really know. I, like, um, I've thought about this some, but I just am like, you know, when I first heard the band, it's like I don't want to sound too generic, but it was literally one of those moments. I was like, yes, that's what that sounds awesome. It was something about the sound. It was just so magical to me. It was just like, oh, I could. That sounds so cool and the way it cast the notes cascade. It just kind of really drew, drew me to it. And you mentioned having heard a bit of Doc Watson, which
1: he plays a bit of banjo, but other than that, was this the first time you were hearing it even in general? Like even
0: I had heard banjo definitely. Like, um, so I would go spend summers with my grandpa mm-hmm. a lot before I moved up to Ash County. I was um, born in, well, I was raised a little bit in Wilkes County, North Carolina. Right. And um, so I'd go up and visit and hang out summers with my grandpa. And so when I was up there, We'd be doing all kinds of things, but we'd constantly be listening to music. That was mm-hmm. one of the things we did, and he listened to a lot of like classic country and like old rock and um, bluegrass. And so I definitely heard banjo. I just hadn't paid much attention to it on recordings. Oh, how interesting! It was so it took hearing it in person
1: for you to connect with it.
0: Yeah, it was really a thing. Um, I mean, I would say like the recordings with banjo was not like necessarily the best recordings of okay. banjo. It was a little bit of looking back at like it, the yeah. hokey banjo, like okay. you know stuff like. Rocky Top, stuff like that. But there was a few. I uh, realized back um, after that, there was a few flattened Scruggs in there that maybe I just didn't hear. But now I love those recordings as it well. Got in, it got in there somewhere. Yes, it got in, the, <laughs> ingrained in there.
1: Yeah, excellent. After hearing your teacher play it and realizing that maybe this was uh, an interest of yours, did you start pursuing that right away, or how did it come about that you actually got one in your hands and started learning?
0: Yeah, so I got one about. Um, I guess June, I think, is when I got one. Of oh, so it was like
1: a month later or something. Yeah, yeah. It was probably okay. like
0: a month. I'd, I'd say about a month later. Wow. I just got a, um, it was a very cheap, like a, I, just, I think I got it from like a pawn shop. Mm-hmm. It was just like a, I think it was a washburn banjo was okay. my first one. And so I would play like just like basic roles that the teacher taught me. He gave me this roll sheet right before school was over. He said, learn these roles. Yeah. And then once you learn these roles, you can start taking lessons. I think that'd be the smart thing for you. And he actually gave me the name to um, his teacher, who was Eric Harden. Okay. And Eric's a great banjo player. He's a national banjo champion. Yeah, I've heard um, that name. From my area. Yeah. So Eric was actually my first like official like banjo teacher. Josh just got me started on roles and stuff. And yeah. So yeah, about, probably about a month later in like June is probably when I first got my first banjo. So also in that club, were they exposing you
1: to all sorts of different music that you hadn't heard and if so what was catching your ear i imagine now that you were gravitating toward banjo you wanted to discover
0: yeah, other banjo players is kind of what i'm thinking yeah definitely i was hearing a lot of like m- definitely more traditional bluegrass and um i was hearing a few fiddle tunes but like i would never thought at the time to play like the fiddle tunes note for note on the banjo you know what okay. i mean like i was definitely just more like hearing um thinking about backup in like, more traditional banjo players play, fiddle like tunes, they might just not even play melody. They'll just, like, roll over it, mm-hmm. the chords kind of, just something that kind of fits it. And it, like, take bits and pieces of the melody. And that's definitely what I was listening to um, more and a lot of, like, Ralph Stanley, Don Reno, and, like, Earl Scruggs, definitely. Okay. And um, actually, after I started playing banjo, I was up at my grandpa's, and I got the Flat and Scruggs CDs out because I knew that they had banjo on them. Yeah. And so I would just listen to those over and over and over and over and over. Oh, cool. <laughs> and I didn't ever try to, you know, it was one of those things I wasn't <laughs> confident enough at the time to try and learn any of the stuff, but I would just listen to it to try and get it in my head. Right. So did you end up taking lessons with Eric? Yeah, I did take lessons with Eric. Um, I took lessons for Eric for about three years. What kind of stuff was he showing you? He was showing me at first, you know, more straight ahead stuff. We started, I think my first song was, um, Triple Creek uh-huh. or, like, Cumberland Gap or something like that. Right. You know, pretty standard. And then um, we did, like, Groundhog, something like that, by Jim Mills. And yeah, um, He's a big Jim Mills guy, so he showed me a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just kept going with that and learning a bunch of traditional stuff at first, mostly. So, I mean, you said he's
1: a national banjo champion. Did he end up branching out with you with, um, you know, of course now your style is, is not just strictly... Earl Scruggs style did some of that branching out start even back then
0: yeah it didn't start necessarily when I first started playing I was definitely a very traditionalist at Uh first um I didn't really at first really like the progressive sounds Uh I was taking lessons with um Steve Lewis at two well Steve Lewis was at the high school I went to after that and we actually had a mountain music class in high school they continued that program or whatever but it was like so the one in middle school was more of a club and the one in high school. Was an actual class. Yeah, it was an actual oh, class. Oh, that's great. So, like, I took that, like, I think starting my, like, second semester of my ninth grade year. So, I got to be around, and Steve's also a national banjo champion. Oh, wow. So, I was around both these players at the same time that were both national champions from my area. Wow. They, they were both showing me a lot of stuff, you know. But like I said, at first, I was definitely more of a traditional person. And then when I started getting into more progressive types of banjo, I think I was in my either ninth or 10th grade year, I went to Merlefest. And I remember I was hanging out with some friends there and we were just playing some tunes and um, I went to the Pete Morning Jam Camp. And so I made some friends there and we were playing some tunes and um, Scott Vestal walked into the tent I didn't know who Scott Vestal was at the time that's probably good yeah it I would, been really intimidating but they were like oh yeah that's Scott Vestal over there like you from Sam Bush's band you should come out and play I knew who Sam Bush was like vaguely I didn't uh-huh. really like I wasn't really up on the names yet and so I was like and so I didn't know who Scott was so I just walked <laughs> you up, did it yeah I just walked up to Scott and I was like hey do you mind like me and my tunes or I mean me and my friends are playing some tunes um would you want to play like a few with us and he was like oh yeah let me just go grab my banjo from the um, bus and I'll come right over oh how great yes he did it yeah he did it yeah he came over and um I remember when I first got into progressive banjo it was this moment during that jam my friends played the song Brown Mountain Lights they did it in E flat Uh and you know I capo I might have caped to the third fret and played out of a C position or I can't remember how I did it now but I remember Scott played it in open E flat and it was perfect and he did all this like so much cool melodic stuff yeah. i wish i had a recording of it now because it was such valuable information all the scott all, vestal stuff that yeah, we've all, all heard him all do scott yeah, vestal, yeah. <laughs> and so i heard that and i was like whoa like that's what is that style of banjo so like then that's when i started getting into more like different styles of banjo and mm-hmm. after that i was like scott vest where's scott vestal so i started like digging into the scott Vestal repertoire and just trying to hear all this and um yeah. Luckily, both my teachers do some Scott Vestal stuff, too, which was really cool, and um, so I started learning a little bit of that, and then um, from there, um, my teacher, Eric, I think, was like, hey, you know about this guy, Baila Fleck, and I was like, no, not really, I didn't know who Baila Fleck was, really, at the time, and he put on some Baila Fleck stuff, I was like, whoa, that's cool. Blowing your mind. Yeah, it's really cool, so then I definitely started getting into, and so I had, like, Baila and Scott, and then. Like, over time, I just got introduced to more people, like Tony Furtado. I got introduced to Tony Furtado, who's awesome. Yeah. And then, like, no you know after a while.
1: Uh, looking back at it, do you think it was pretty important that you, that you had a bit of that traditional foundation before you discovered the Vestals and the Flex of the world?
0: Yes and no. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm really glad I did learn the traditional stuff. I, I wish kind of – one of my biggest regrets is I wish I would have always – been more open-minded about the banjo in that way Hmm. because I feel like it would have progressed me a little bit differently in a different way maybe but yeah I'm really like happy I am happy I learned all the traditional stuff because like it makes when I'm playing bluegrass very authentic. like I just like to be able to fit into that
1: yeah exactly so once you did start discovering them, what were some of the vestal things that you learned or that your teachers were able to teach you? Do you
0: remember any of them? Yeah, yeah I would probably say, I'm trying to think what the first Scott Vestal thing mm-hmm. I really learned is he showed me, I remember my teacher showed me this lick and I thought it was like the hardest lick at the time <laughs> ever but it was like... Like something like that. And I mean, that's like a very common, like Scott Vesta lick. Yeah. And so I remember like him showing me, I think, I think it was that lick. I might be wrong, but it was something like that. Okay, I remember being like, this is so hard. Right. And like not knowing like how to really go with it. But um, now it's not super hard for me, but like back then it was like,
2: whoa.
0: Yeah. You know, when I was first coming from like a more like, you know, Don Reno, Earl Scruggs ralph stanley type background it's pretty different yeah it is very different yeah
1: so you must have taken it pretty seriously because you ended up going to college for
0: music right yeah i took it pretty seriously it was honestly after i learned a um well actually i was going to competitions oh starting out early too hmm. and so i was one a lot of banjo players there and i remember i got beat a couple times mm-hmm. and i'm i'm about healthy competition but like that was like one of those things that was like I don't like getting beat so much. Like, I like I went to a Fiddler's convention. I remember when I was playing for like a year, uh-huh. I got like fifth place out of like five people. And I remember oh, that really... Sort of stung. That really burned me. Oh. I didn't really like that at all. <laughs> so, like, that's when I really started, like, digging into the banjo. My teacher, uh, Steve, was like, if you want to go, you have to, like, practice right. more. Because I was doing, like, an hour a day, which um, to some people's a lot. But, like... Then I started like ramping it up and doing like four or five hours a day. Mm. And then, you know, there were times I was doing like nine hours a day yeah. of just playing banjo. Like I would just literally get up in the morning, play banjo, come home from school, play banjo, and then <laughs> do my homework for a second, go back to playing banjo, <laughs> eat dinner, play banjo, go to bed in that cycle. Repeat. repeat. Yeah. You
1: know? <laughs> When you're putting in so much time, do you remember some of the things that you worked on that maybe had a big impact on
0: your progress? Yeah, I remember um, one of the things like when I was, especially when I started working on like melodic style stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of like early melodic style really helped me because, like, I mean, I was learning some of the, like some of the Scott Vessel stuff, but then learning like some like, stuff from like Courtney Johnson and players like that. It's not necessarily how I want to play, but it was definitely more approachable stuff. sort like, of a middle step, to, yeah, to, to you, get from where you were to to stuff. Exactly, yeah. Like they're like, yeah, I think this would be like a good stepping stone because like mixing melodic and um, Scruggs style might be a good way to kind of forge your way through and learn all this stuff.
1: So, how did you actually? Practice that stuff to to integrate it.
0: Yeah, so I remember um, a big thing would be just playing along with recordings. Mm -hmm. That was one of my biggest things. Like I would just pull up a recording and play along with it until I feel like I really like had a grasp on it. And um, sometimes I would have to like just sit and like I didn't learn about a metronome until I was in like eleventh grade, Uh so I didn't really start working with a metronome until then. But up till then, yeah, it was definitely just playing along with recordings, or I would just like play passages over and over and over. I'm a big repeat person. Even in my practice now, when I'm working on something, I won't move on to something else until I get that thing. I get fixated on like, this is what I got to (laughs) do. And so like, if I just will keep working on something, and that's definitely something I did back then too. Oh, let's talk about that. That's, I, I love
1: hearing how people really drill into what they're learning. Can you think of a a recent example, maybe of like something that you, that you learned that you had to Repeat for yourself a a million times over?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, One of the things, actually, it was like two weeks ago. Okay. This um, lick, I was like trying to work in more tritonal. If I was in G, like the tritone would be the D. D flat Mm -hmm. and so like I was definitely trying to work in more lines that kind of combine those two just to make like improv a little bit more interesting okay and so like I was trying to come up with lines and there was one line I came up with that I've probably heard before because it sounds like it's something that somebody would definitely have played I just can't I can't remember I just like came up with it because I thought of it and I was actually playing it a little bit. just a second ago for you because I've still been working on it but
2: yeah. it was like it's
0: not that hard of a line it's just like the way the fingerings might be on the fingerboard it's just kind of awkward for me yeah. I'm just wanting it to feel natural so yeah. I can like just pull that kind of stuff out whenever but it's like this line that's like yeah something like that and I just wanted that to be like more of a natural thing and so I would just literally just go through and and just keep practicing that really slow. And like I said, it's not that hard. It just feels uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, and it's like I can do it now. It just still feels a little like... Just new moves. Yeah, yeah, it's like I've done stuff like that in the past. Like I'll do like... uh, Let's see, I forget that one. Like something like that. Uh And like I've done moves like that in the past, but then like just kind of working in this new stuff has been kind of awkward for me. Are you
1: able to give us a quick like music theory lesson about how the tritone substitution works and where you would use that in like an actual
0: fiddle tune or a piece of music? Yeah, or something? totally. So like this one is more like I guess in the key of C is what I would say because what I'm doing here is like I'm going basically resolving to this C and I'm using the tritone to get up to it. So the tritone usually will work over the um, five chord five yeah yeah, and that's where it works really good or like a dominant either a five or like a dominant seven I think is where it would really sound good okay it might not work over the dominant seven as well it's just it depends on the song really but I know definitely over the five to resolve to a um, one because whatever key you're in so your tritone is just going to be the half step up from your resolve key Right. So like you're like the substituted. Yeah, tritone. yeah. Yeah, right. So like you know if I have a G7 my tritone would be a would be a D flat. So and then one step back from the D flat is my resolve of C. Yeah. And so definitely like I think it's more of, like resolving to a 5 so you can do any kind of like line that basically fits that time and You kind of got to remember, though, I think in one instance, though, is you don't want to just sound like you're playing a D-flat. Like, you definitely want to integrate some of that G in there. Okay. You don't want to just, like, you know, something that resolves to that. And just, you know. You know, because then that kind of sounds awkward. It just sounds like you're right yeah, yeah versus, like a spanish versus, matador sound yeah, yeah. versus <laughs> like so you kind of like i try to think of it when i'm phrasing i guess like you know something like that yeah. kind of or so like when i'm thinking about incorporating yeah, cool. those tritones i try to think about it in that way
1: so i know this is totally putting you on the spot yeah. but but this new lick that you just uh worked on are you able to play any sort of musical passage that <laughs> inserts that? And in have yeah. you have you gotten that far um,
0: with it yet? Yeah, yeah, I've definitely thought about it. I mean, like I could like let's see. I guess you have yeah, to think yeah, of something yeah. and see. Yeah, I was <laughs> just trying to think of a song and see that would work really well for it to demonstrate. Um, Building the low ground might be good. Okay, let's see. Um, uh. uh you know, you could do it.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's kind of a cool... And that, with Billy in the low ground, it's even a little more interesting because the harmony is that minor chord for the beginning of yeah, that before exactly. it, So, yeah, there's all sorts of yeah, I'm like, stuff with, going on. With
0: that specific uh, uh. lick that I'm doing there, it's kind of weird. I, it's just like more of like a getting that those kind of ideas under my finger It's necessarily like i'd use that exact lick in a fiddle tune necessarily but it would be just getting those ideas in there and so like like really i'm kind of doing almost like a g like nine kind of there because i'm using like that like i'm doing the d flat and i'm kind of going into a g9 from there because i'm using like the a yeah you know and kind of walking up that way okay
1: just to wrap that up when you're practicing something like that talk about what your standard is for i don't know when are you done you you said you said you like repeat it over and over again what what do you do like get it under your fingers and then speed it up and make sure you can play it yeah play it up to speed game tempo or whatever
0: yeah that's definitely a big thing of mine i'm very I don't know. It's one of those things I'm never really happy with something. Mm-hmm. I just, like, kind of force myself to move on to other things because I realize <laughs> yeah. i got to get other things done. When you start driving yourself crazy, maybe? Yeah, cause... I just really can't, like, I don't know. I just, like, I'm really never satisfied with my playing. That's a good thing, I guess. So that's, like, one thing I definitely have to remember is, like, even if, like, I listen to recording, I'm like, oh, that's cool, and that sounds good, I'm just still, like, I'm very nitpicky about my own play. I'm like, I'll hear one thing like, that's needs this one thing, and I'll go back and work on it. So it's kind of like a never-ending process, but I've kind of got myself to where I just have to, like, accept something's good enough in my... You know what I mean? Yeah. Everything's always a work in progress, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't like to ever say, like, I'm satisfied with something because, like... I just always am going to hear things that I'm like, I could have done that better there, yeah. or I'm going to do that better there. My
1: my boothmate, uh, Daniel, and I were talking about this yesterday. We're, we're like, how funny is it that the more experience you get with your instrument, the worse you think you are at it. And I think it's because like you get developed more, that you do hear more and more of your flaws as you get more advanced. And in a weird way, that can almost make it seem like you're getting worse because you're so much more critical of your own playing
0: yeah that's definitely a thing me you know me and a friend of mine also had a conversation about this like two years ago i remember this conversation we were talking about playing like we used to have be able to play some of these licks so fast and it's not even that we were playing them like Accurate. It's just that we were able to play them so fast, and now we just feel like when we're playing them, we can't play them as, cause <laughs> like be, because your standard is higher. Yeah, because my standard for like timing and tone and everything so much higher that like you know back then like I could do like you know like stuff like flicks <laughs> like that and like I could play those like super. I feel I felt like super cranking at the time, uh-huh. but I feel like I was just like playing them, like it's probably just sounding like It just probably sound really yeah messy muddy and. That out of time i'm sure but thinking about things in that way it just really like i know exactly what you're saying it feels like you're getting worse even though you're actually getting better it's weird yeah yeah
1: exactly so when did we start talking about you going to to music school or did we not no, talk my a,
0: bad sorry I, yeah i kind of got off no it's, it's all me I,
1: I i led you down it folks we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction And at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele. So you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out the courses they have, and this is just for banjo. You could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Each of those courses include high quality video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the best thing yet, is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories, to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere, and we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972, and if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517 372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? they all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So, go check them out. GHSStrings.com They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there.
0: Yeah, is that where we were? Yeah, yeah. You going to study some music? Yeah, so I went to ETSU, um, East Tennessee State University, for the Bluegrass program. Right. I remember I wasn't going to go to school at all, but then people very encouraged me to go and go do college. And um, like I was thinking, if I go to college, I'm definitely going to do music. And um, I was playing with a band called Cane Mill Road at the time. We were doing a lot of progressive stuff at this point. Was that a band that, that started out of the college? That or was start, this separate? no, Cane Mill Road, I was playing Cane Mill Road when I was 16. Huh. So I was like, a lot of the stuff like I was learning was getting incorporated into our music. Yeah. And we were all like, um, all of us were wanting to do more progressive stuff, definitely. And like, as well, keep some traditional stuff in it, but like definitely like do more progressive stuff. And so, I was definitely, like, getting pretty comfortable with the progressive stuff, but I almost felt like I was, like, getting away from the traditional stuff a little yeah. too, like, because I hadn't really, like, I didn't really dwell into it a whole lot after I started learning, like, a bunch of this progressive stuff. And so, then when I when I was aside from school, I was like, you know, I kind of want to be around, like, some bl- real bluegrass playing because i wanted to not lose that part of my playing yeah and so i was really um went to etsu and it really helped me hone in my um bluegrass banjo skills a lot like kind of get some of that like attack and drive back that i kind of felt like i had personally lost a little bit talk
1: talk about that how do you go revisit that and and add to your sense of drive and technique
0: yeah definitely like all the banjo teachers when i first got in there were pretty driving players like Mm -hmm. Pretty and so they like. Um, Who were your professors? Uh, for banjo, it was like I had like um, Brandon Green. Hmm. He's really good. Uh, he's another national banjo. <laughs> I've gotten the word from yeah, of- yeah. You have a knack for. Finding, people, yeah though. but he was a professor there and um he um is really good at like being very driving as well as playing really cool and interesting stuff he's a great banjo player he was really into the scott vessel stuff so that was perfect because okay. he was teaching me and then like at the same time i was like learning kind of how to get this drive back from watching yeah. him like in my playing that i felt like i was just kind of like lightened up a little too much you know what i mean yeah and then um so he taught me definitely that and then it was just like a balance of like not playing too hard too that was a big struggle for me it's like i feel like i'd just be hammering down on stuff when i was Uh playing it like after i started like get a lot of people think when you're like trying to do drive you're like like that kind of stuff you know really hard like right like really Uh, hard playing kind of yeah. yeah and um when i was trying to get that stuff back you know i was just trying to like i figured out techniques to like reduce hand tension and like really um still get that drive that I was looking for without like having to like knock my banjo out of <laughs> every yeah. time I played. That was definitely a thing that I was wanting to get back.
1: So what would some of those techniques be that that helped you out? Do you remember any?
0: Yeah, I do. Um I still use these like I just try to think like it's not really about your like the amount of hardness you're playing. It's about your touch to it. Yeah. We're we're just talking right hand at this yeah, point. Yeah, right hand, yeah. And you know, um, Definitely, there's some left-hand stuff I'll talk about here in just a second. But, like, with the right hand, you know, I was thinking, okay, let's get good, solid rolls without playing super hard. Uh So, I remember I would do, like. Just, like, rolls like that, literally, and, like. Or. Or, like, reverse that. And I remember I'd practice those until I got those, like where I felt pretty close to, like, what I would be happy with. Yeah. And then, you know, then I started talking, like, thinking about left-hand stuff. I was like, okay, well, let's work on our left-hand. so, like, really emphasizing pull-offs and, like, slides a lot more were definitely, like, something I worked on because it's very, like – that adds so much to like a driving like bluegrass sound in my opinion.
1: Now, by emphasizing, uh, explain what you mean by emphasizing. Yeah,
0: so like when you're doing a pull off, you know, you like, you know, really getting that strong pull off, and then you know, like with a slide, you want to really be able to, you know, really get that like very solid, like, like almost hear like a scoop in it, like you know, with that okay. s- slide, like. you're you're
2: doing the bend and slide yeah yeah
1: that's a great that's a great trick that i stumbled on
0: a little bit ago
1: and and once you start doing that you can't it adds so much yeah and you don't
0: it's one of those things you don't realize to do until you really hear it from somebody like yeah try this slide and um there was another teacher there jerry keys who taught at etsu Uh who talked to me a lot about that because like when i went first went into lessons with him doing my slides he's like oh i think those could be a little bit stronger Hmm. and I was like oh but which way and he's like well try to bend your slides when you're doing it because you know you can you can just do like the
2: and that's a sound
0: for sure but then you know it adds so much different of a sound if you do like <laughs> you know like stuff like yeah. and so like it just literally, comes alive a little bit yeah, more yeah and it was like it just gives a little bit of attitude so right. definitely like things like that help me like kind of regain that confidence in that cool without having to like you know play like super hard
1: yeah Going back to the right hand yeah. when you when you said you were um, doing those roles to the point where you were happy with them. Yeah. So you're talking about not playing too hard and yeah. not with too much tension, so that there's a bit of like just physiology happening, but there's also like a timing thing. To yeah. Be, to be happy with it. So what are you concentrating on when you're actually going through those and when you're trying to like regain that drive is what you were talking about what what is it that you're
0: listening for I'm listening for very accurate timing I'm listening for emphasis notes and that's a big thing like there's a lot of banjo players who just I'm not going to say not good at doing that but they're like I guess I would just say they don't emphasize Hmm. certain notes and that really comes like you know for instrumentals it's not as noticeable because you know you're usually just like playing something and it's just a fun time. You uh-huh. know, but like, you know, if you're playing like a vocal tune, that's where like I've noticed it really comes into play. When you're really trying to mm-hmm. emphasize that melody, you really want to be able to hear the melody notes. You don't want yeah. every. and that was something like, actually Pete Warnick talked to me about at one point mm-hmm. when I was going to his jam camp. He was talking about like really imp- bringing out the melody notes with like a certain finger. So, you know, like yeah. I would take like simple, simple, simple melodies like I'll Fly Away. Yeah. And just like... Mm-hmm can really like even though that's like a very basic song you can hear the melody really so like I remember when I was like trying I was like oh I really want to be able to like really emphasize these melodies when I'm playing them so literally just doing stuff like that with basic basic stuff and you know it sounds weird because at this point I was like playing like pretty complicated stuff at this point still Hmm. but I was also like going back and doing like because sometimes like a lot of people like they'll learn the most complicated stuff and then when they come back to the easy stuff it's like Harder than the hard stuff.
1: Well, some sometimes even if the idea, the idea can be basic. Yeah, emphasize the melody, but that doesn't mean that doing it perfectly is, yeah. is
0: simple or, or easy. Exactly. Yeah. And so I guess like my thing is like where I am such like a person that's like I'm, I definitely got to get this spot on. Uh huh. You know, like. Definitely, I think I just went back and, like, re, like visited that a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, as far as emphasizing the melody, I just wanted to really be able to hear the melody with, like, everything I played vocally.
1: Before we sort of move on to your, your post-school yeah. playing, is there anything else that you remember from your ETSU days that was, like, really
0: critical or, or, or important thing that you learned? Yeah, totally. I learned, like, a lot. I, I mean, I could go... A long time on this um i did i really searched out and tried to do different things while i was there uh-huh. um i did a lot of different styles of music besides bluegrass as well because i also didn't you know it's very easy once you it's you know it's all a balance because you know once you start wanting like bluegrass stuff it's very easy just to get in that vein and yeah. never go outside of that vein which is fine if you don't want to but i'm always i really started getting in different types of music i was really always want to not just be comfortable in one thing. I wanted to be like adapted everything. Yeah. So I took like some jazz classes at ETSU as well, and played um, in a jazz ensemble for a couple of semesters where I got to really focus on like some bebop stuff as well oh, wow. as some New Orleans like jazz stuff, which was pretty cool. And you were doing that with three finger five string, yeah, banjo? three finger banjo, yeah, huh? Yeah, so I was doing a lot of that stuff. Um, at the, it's almost the same time, probably. What's like the bebop one hundred and
1: one for? people stuck in bluegrass what what would be like I'm first day's lesson of, of what to do this is just for me yeah. at this point because <laughs> I'm endlessly befuddled by trying to play jazz I I, I tell I, myself I want to
0: and I just it's I found really Charlie tough. Parker was like the best person to go to because yeah. even though it sounds it is really intimidating stuff like I'm still intimidated by some of Charlie Parker stuff yeah because it's so hard but like that stuff I think is like Bebop 101. I think that's like if you want a textbook example of what Bebop is Charlie Parts is the person to go
1: to in my opinion. It's also nice I I have worked on a little bit of Charlie's stuff and I also find that it's nice that the alto sax seem to have like a really similar range to banjo so yeah. it,
0: it it simplifies that single aspect of it too. Yeah and I found something Charlie's playing that's really like unique It's like you hear a lot of similarities. Like if you'll go and listen to like Kenny Baker, hmm. if you listen to the lines that like Kenny Baker really in depth is playing versus what Charlie Parker is playing in some of this like more straight ahead bebop stuff. Oh no kidding! It's very similar. Like wow. kind of weirdly, because yeah, like, I've never noticed that, but that's yeah, that's it's really something crazy. to really listen to. It's like something you don't think. I think it's just because like music is such a universal thing that it's like some of the ideas are just going to translate. Yeah. But if you listen, like I remember the lick I first heard this was was the um. I heard Kenny Baker do something so similar to that, and that's a Charlie Parker lick I just played. And I heard Kenny Baker do almost something identical to that one time. And I remember after that, I was like, huh, that's a Charlie Parker type thing. And, you know, I don't know who came up with that. It might have not been Charlie Parker or Kenny Baker. Yeah. But, you know, hearing that, I was like, dang, Like, what other? And I remember listening, I was like, dang, there's so many similarities here with how they like went through their lines and stuff. Well, that one sounds kind of ragtimey. Yeah, is. it does. Yeah, like I think he started um his break to ornithology was like that. He did it okay. in G though, I think actually. Sorry I haven't played this line in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but that line right there, I think he started his um ornithology break like that and that's kind of a bluegrass-esque line. And then you hear like players like Tony Rice, which Tony Rice was very influenced by Bebop anyway, but mm-hmm. you hear players like Tony Rice also, like he has like a lick almost identical to that as well.
1: Yeah. So you said that Charlie Parker would be Bebop 101. Yeah, I think so. But in terms of someone playing the banjo, what, what
0: should they do with that? Do you think they should work on transcribing or is there...
2: I think transcribing
0: is important. I think... Um, there's a lot of things you could do. I remember when I was first starting to learn it, I remember I was just kind of playing through scales almost. I felt okay. like- I remember um, Blue Boss, like, was is like a boss and everything. I remember literally just starting my break like- You know, something like that, just uh-huh. like something really basic, like scale your stuff. And I remember that after a while, I was like, I really want to learn this language yeah. a little bit more. And um, like, yeah, I guess I started like doing like different like bebop kind of runs. Listen to a bunch of John Coltrane mm. was a big thing for me, like like stuff like that. Like he would do like runs like like stuff like that, kind of like. Like, just learning these little runs, like, kind of learning the language. Like, I think a lot of people, when they get into jazz, they get way, way, way too into the, like, theoretical part of it. I think you really, it's like, I think any form of music, once you're really under your fingers, you know, a lot of people just, like, don't think about it. Like, you know, you've heard people be like, I don't think about this when I'm playing. Right. I really think that's, like, a big key factor because, you know, or a lot of people say, oh, when I start, like, playing something really in depth and I start thinking about it, that's when I mess up. I think it's the same thing with bebop is you just kind of have to like, when you learn the melodies, just kind of let yourself be free in the improv part of it. Mm. Like, don't think about it a lot, I think is like a big thing that helped me. One of my teachers at the school when I was doing jazz told me that he said, don't think about it as hard as you are. Because I'd really be thinking, I'd be like, I want to do this scale here and this scale here. And he's like, don't do that. Well, not thinking is one of my specialties. So, <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I think, I l- I think a lot of the time, you know, like a lot of this bebop language is not that they're doing anything particular; it's just phrasing. Oh, that's a big thing. It's phrasing, and like learning, like the like da 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 da, you know, like that kind of phrasing, and then, or like da 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 da, you know, like that kind of phrasing. Yeah. You know, that's very jazz phrasing. I think that's a big part of it. Taking these motifs
1: and kind of transforming it through. Just these different areas. exactly. Cool. Uh, So after you emerged from that, how long ago was that that you finished school?
0: I finished school actually like four months ago.
1: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I don't know why I was thinking it was was earlier. But now that you've had this education and, and these different influences, what are some other stylistic elements that you think have come together to form Trey's
0: style. Yeah, I definitely think like the jazz thing really was one of my biggest influences. Definitely like learning some of those ideas and implicating them. Um, I'll find myself with like improv a lot, you know, using enclosures and like...
1: Yeah, go through what what you mean by that.
0: Yeah, so like, you know, I guess like the basic, like if we're going into like the really basic form of enclosures, literally like... You know, stuff like that. Just like kind of taking two notes in like in, literally enclosing another note or like, you know, yeah. I was talking a little bit earlier before I interview with, you, you know, about the, right, you know, like that kind of, that's an enclosure right there because I'm doing, you know, kind of right. like that. And, you know, um, you know, right there, even that's an enclosure. So I find myself doing a lot of those. Um, figured out we were doing this episode and started thinking about all these things I do yeah. in my improv.
1: Going back to the enclosures, I've I've heard people do different things in terms of, like, let's just take the key of G, where you follow the key for the note above your target note, but then it's always a half step below it. Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, that's exactly kind of what I'm doing. Is that it? Yeah.
0: Okay. Like I know, like so, so you the could ball- also
1: do half steps on both sides. Yeah, you could or do like, scale steps on both sides. Yeah,
0: I kind of combine the two. Like okay. like that first idea, I played the like this first one. Yeah. I'm playing like A, G, F sharp, G. Yeah, and then so that's like whole step, half like that's a whole step and then half step, and that's another whole step.
1: Well, that follows the scale for that example, but like, let's take um, like enclosing B. Yeah, would you would you go down to B flat or would you go down to A
0: to enclose mm, that? If I was doing like a B and G, right out of G uh, key. key I, of G. Either way, would really almost like the B flat a little bit better. I think uh-huh. it adds a little bit more distance to the. Yeah, I definitely think when I'm going to like B, this is something like I, I definitely like when I'm playing B or something. Like if I was doing like Old Home Place or something like.
2: <laughs> you know,
0: I wouldn't play it like that because that's not really the language. That's pretty hip though. Yeah, but I would like yeah. definitely like. You know, I definitely do like, maybe like, I would I would follow the G scale in that regard. Because I don't think playing the B scale there would really fit. Okay. But I do like that, like when I was doing... I like that a little bit better, because I think it gives like a little bit more of like a different sound. I just like the doing the B flat there for the enclosure
1: there. Having it be a, just a little bit out makes it snap back once it's... In yeah, if that if that makes sense yeah yeah
0: yeah like you like uh like a lot of time I find myself also like going to kind of like a B minor sound when I'm playing B and G because it kind of follows that scale like like that major seventh type of tone Yeah. yeah yeah I feel like it works pretty well there
1: yeah for sure and then the other Thing that you that you just mentioned was like a, a sweep picking thing. Yeah. What, are, what are you doing there? I don't think I've seen anyone do that.
0: Yeah, so like like sometimes if I'm playing a line, I like like that one line I was showing you, like the or something like that. I mean, it doesn't have to be exactly that line, but like so I'm like and and I, I guess I should describe this because
1: it, it might not be apparent to people hearing it, but uh, sweep picking. It's it's kind of an electric guitar term, but but what Trey's doing is as he moves up each of the strings, that's just one continuous downstroke of the thumb pick. Yeah, it, you're not. It's actually you're an not upstroke. doing a roll. Yeah, you're doing yeah. both, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, and like you could do it the other way, like yeah, and like. Like something like that, like that was all thumb right there. But like for the sweep, I would definitely probably just do, yeah, like something like that. Yeah, kind of like cool. that's a, that's something I heard Charlie Christian do. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Christian didn't like he I think he used a flat pick, obviously. Yeah. But those sweep patterns, he'd play like a D minor over G a lot, which was really cool. Uh huh. And so like, and he would like you know that would be like to a C, but he might do. Kinda, of, It's kind of cool. It's a weird thing. So like, it's kind of like the sound is very close with both, but you can definitely hear it's almost like... It's a little bit more abrasive when you do it with the thumb.
1: Right. Yeah. Neat. Let's talk about your, your instruments and your gear and stuff. Yeah. What kind of banjo is that that you have?
0: This is a um, Deering
1: Timbrook Saratoga Star model. All right. Yeah. Was there something that drew that to you, or you just connected with the sound of it?
0: Yeah, I had actually played this banjo um, in twenty like sixteen, I want to say, uh, no twenty seventeen. I'd played this banjo, and so when I was like wanting to get a new banjo because um, the banjo I had it was a good, it was a great banjo. It's just um, when I was starting to do more progressive stuff, I just wanted something that would follow my sound a little bit more. Okay. And so de- when I reached out to Deering, I was like, yeah, do y'all have that banjo? Because I'd been thinking about that one anyway. Like, actually, yeah, we think we know the one you're talking about. And it turned out it was the right one.
1: And you're talking about the
0: specific instrument, yeah, not, not specific, just the same model. No, same instrument, yeah, and oh. everything. So they had this one at a showroom. I said, hey, do you have that banjo by chance that was oh. actually at the show? And they were like, yeah, we still have that one. That's great. Yeah. So you basically your view of this is that it it was
1: a versatile enough instrument to handle both the... Bluegrassy stuff and
0: everything you're just showing us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It um, it's kind of bluegrass sound, yeah. and then like you know, if I move up here, you know, like I'm still getting a great like bebop sound, and then um, I'm getting a good like melodic sound there. So it's kind of great all around for that.
1: Was that the bridge from Scrapple from the Apple that you just played? There it was. Yeah, All right, right, then that's
0: then,
2: the.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's one of the few things that I've managed to make myself learn. It's very hard. <laughs> it took me for- yeah, it took me forever, and. I probably still can't play it i took
0: jazz okay. guitar lessons and i had to learn a bunch of this stuff note for notes oh that's that's great to put yourself through that though yeah
1: what other equipment type things are you partial to bridges picks heads anything that's part of uh what your preference is yeah i have like a pruka bridge on here and it's a presto style right yeah or, yeah oh oh no oh, Pri- um, bridge you said yeah I'm bridge sorry sorry, sorry my my bad. yeah
0: yeah, I mean, um, yeah, well, the tail, the tailpiece, yeah, it is a Presto-style tailpiece. But it's the deering yeah, one that, yeah, that came with it. Yeah, and then this is a Pruka bridge. Okay. I was definitely experimenting with bridges over the pandemic, and it was something I, um, I saw this when I was like, well, I asked um, Yarda at Pruka to send me some, yeah. and um, he sent me, like, four or five to try out, and um, this was the one I really liked. Yeah, I guess, like, other—I I use a Fishman pickup on the banjo. okay. I've been recently, I guess, using the pickup for backup more and then actually having a mic up on stage for a lead. Oh, okay. Yeah, just so I can like walk around stage and still get that kind of interaction with the band. But the mic gives you a a boost also. Yeah, yeah. In addition to some
1: tonal things. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like, I just think like I was starting to blend the sounds and I like the blend a lot more. And what are you using? Well, what are you using for microphone,
1: first of all? And then how are you? blending them
0: yeah so i'm using a um most time an sm81 if i have my preference okay because it's kind of like i'll use that or i'll use a rode ntk1 is that another condenser yeah that's like a small it's like it's almost like a copy of a um oh a neumann um Oh, KM184. Right. It's kind of like the exact same thing, Okay. and it has those very warm properties. And I like that one a little bit more than the Shore in some cases because the pickup obviously gives a little bit of a brighter tone. Okay, and um, I use a um, Fishman um, Platinum Pro EQ for my boost pedal and um, my sound and all that. And so what I'll do is I'll just run the pickup through that, and so then they'll be getting that main. Let's get, get oh a, yeah, my bad. Post. Sorry, sorry.
1: Especially the Oh yeah. To... <laughs> Sorry. try to overcome that yeah that's so cool.
0: when i'm using the fishman platinum pro eq kind of what i'm trying to do is um i'll plug it in and i'll use that for backup sounds yeah and then um which works out pretty good and then i'll just literally step into a mic but something that's kind of cool is like when it's coming through the front of house yeah it's kind of like giving a little bit of both so it's almost like you're getting two. it's almost like you're stereo miking. yeah which is kind of cool it's kind of like a weird concept but it's like you're stereo miking. so they're getting like Two different signals from your banjo in the house, right? But it's like kind of doing like this, like you were using two different mics in a studio. A little bit of a like a special thing when you have your solo or a kickoff, or exactly. Something like yeah, because you know when you're stepped away from the mic, you're having just the straight pickup sound. Mm-hmm. But then when you step into the mic, I don't know if you ever do, I guess you do do a lot of mixing with this podcast, but you know, like when you're mixing, you know, you're just bringing up the levels of something during the break or lowering the levels of something. So it's kind of like you're raising the levels of it when you step into that mic a little bit. So you don't actually
1: blend them yourself. The mic just kind of goes to the the front of house guy and and you have your pickup thing running.
0: Yeah, I know some people use that Grace um, preamp that you can actually Blend, the my, yeah, and the in the mic and the pickup sense, right? And but I mean, I like the sound of my Fishman Platinum Pro EQ really good though for that stuff for blending still. Cool. A- anything else you're using like on I'll, stage for performing? Uh, sometimes I'll have a like I have pedals. I use I have a pedal board. Oh, do you? Yeah. And What's I'll on use, that? For my like banjo one, I don't put a whole lot on it. Okay. I mean, I have my platinum pro eq which has a tuner and boost on it yeah i have a reverb pedal which is a tc electronics hall of fame 2 reverb pedal and then i have a chorus um effect on there which is a also hmm, give me just a second i'm trying to think if that is a t it is a tc electronics i forget the name of that one got a blue one it's like a blue one yeah it's like but you use it for banjo too yeah it's really cool what uh what sort
1: of musical situations do you find that being a, a cool addition for? Yeah,
0: so like we do some like blues or like R and B stuff. Oh, we have the song um, "Feels Like Summer," which is a childish Gambino song that we do. Okay, and so like especially for the intro of that, I'll turn both of those on, and I'll do this little chordal intro that's like. like when i'm doing stuff like that it just really helps ring it oh, out and cool. kind of give like a cool like overall sound does it imitate like an organ yeah kind of kind of yeah it's very similar um i'm definitely one of the things that i'm about to buy probably is a or a um one of the organ pedals like the um i think it's called the I forget the company that makes it but it's like called a b2 or a c2
1: i think that's probably an electro harmonics pedal
0: yeah it is it's electro harmonics yeah. yeah that's it and um they they have like an organ sound and um yeah they do they do a great job yeah it's really cool stuff and yeah. so like I've used one on banjo before like one of my friends had one uh-huh. and it sounded so good so at some point I'm definitely gonna gonna those, do that those are
1: fun <laughs> I, I have one of the uh, the Pog pedals which is sort of another thing that gets you that organ yeah. sound and like it'll change how you play you'll you'll start to hear different things yeah so I just want it's, to like it's be a able to,
0: nice creative tool I want to be able to just do these big chords like. Yeah, <laughs> you know I like stuff like that yeah
1: that's great anything else we forgot to to cover i think we i think we did I a good we, job i
0: think we got it all um yeah sorry this is all kind of you know talking about some of my technique stuff especially it's kind of new to me so well any um,
1: anything else that you can you can think of let us know or or if not then then that's cool. I think we're good. All right. Tell everyone how to find like you and your music and tour dates.
0: Yeah. That business. Um, you can go to my website, treywellington.com. And, and, and um, it's
1: T-R-A-Y, right? Yeah, T R Like, a, like yeah. a lunch tray or yeah, something. Like yeah, like a lunch tray. Exactly, yeah.
0: My real name's Trajan Wellington, so um, I go by Trey, though, just okay. so because people, I got some really weird pronunciations of my name and spellings oh like tr- yeah i got, tr- I, I, got tr- I got trojan a lot <laughs> trojan. <laughs> that was one and um so um yeah i just went to tray but yeah you can find me at t-r-a-y and then wellington w-e-l-l-i-n-g-t-o-n that's one one word together dot com yeah on there you can find my booking contact as well which is virginia prater at prater days if you're interested in an event my, all my tour dates on there i have a store if you want to buy a cd or a t-shirt or a sticker or tabs. I have some tabs on my website now.
1: Oh, cool! I'll have to check that out. And we didn't even. And I'm sorry, we didn't even bring up like your your EP is excellent. I've listened to that. Oh, a, the um, Unkai Shlok one. Yeah. Oh, okay. have another studio album coming up
0: pretty yeah, soon yeah i'll have another studio album um probably in the next like, six months okay um six months to seven months um, i'm actually meeting about that today
1: <laughs> yeah just talked to john upstairs actually he mentioned that so, oh
0: really that's cool yeah so i'll have another one of those and um yeah definitely be on the lookout for that it will incorporate more original music oh that's fantastic and then, um yeah and i have some singles out through mountain home music company who's my record label now and one of the like this Pond Mountain Breakway I have out, and then I have um, Half Past Four out, and then I have Strasburg Saint Denis out.
1: Those are all singles. The, yeah, what, those what are all singles. Yeah. Listening? Okay, that's great. Yeah. Half Past Four is that that Hartford tune? Yeah. The um. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again. That was really informative. Great stuff, man.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. The sound clips that you heard in this episode were Move Over by Trey Wellington. Up on the Blue Ridge by Scott Vestal, Crooked Smile by the Newgrass Revival, Scrapple from the Apple by Charlie Parker, and Let's Take a Leap by Trey Wellington. Thank you once again to today's Patreon supporter of the show, that's Brad Kaladner. Stay tuned for more from him. Uh, the rest of you head to patreon.com banjo podcast to support the show. Contact me at pickyfingersbanjo podcast at gmail.com, and that's going to do it for me. I'll see you all next time.